Good morning. Uh, if there's anybody here that doesn't know me, my name is Brad. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Adam and Jenna are both on vacation, and Adam returns tomorrow, so I get the pleasure of being up here this morning. Okay, kids, there you go. Your teachers are in the back. A great adventure. Lord bless those kids. Um, so this morning, I'm going to talk about um, Rahab and Gideon. We've been going through a Heroes of Faith series, and uh, in Hebrews 11, there's a list of people that did uh, were involved in mighty acts of God. They did acts of faith that uh, kind of immortalized them, if you will, in the scriptures. And so we've been going through that. Last week we did Moses and Joshua. This week we'll do uh, Rahab and Gideon. And so uh, my daughter asked me, what are you going to preach on? And I said, Rahab and Gideon. And she, go, and she was kind of looking for, and I said, I came up with the title for it. Now I'm not going to tell you that title. It's a, it's a, what do you call it? A riddle. You have to figure it out. But anyway, I didn't think it was probably appropriate to share it from here. So <laughs> those of you that know me, that adds a little fuel to the fire. So anyway, um, let's pray and then we'll kind of dive in. Father, thank you so much for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, Lord, to teach us your word to weave into our lives those things that we need to grow in the knowledge of you, to grow up into all things, to manifest your kingdom, to walk in your power, all of those things, Lord, that you do. We pray, Father, that today you will bring us near to yourself, open our hearts, help us hear, Lord, something of you that will meet each one of us to build us up, Lord, and to give us confidence, Lord, in the days that we face, in Jesus' name. So, Rahab's story is found in um, uh, Joshua chapter 2, but first I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 11, just the first two verses. Faith is the confidence that we hope for that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. Okay. Now these two people have some things in common, even though it doesn't seem like it right off. Rahab is... is um, presented to us as a prostitute. We'll talk about that a little bit. She's living in Jericho. And then uh, um, and, and the, the time setting is just before Israel is ready to cross the river. Is, are we having problems? I kind of thought so because it sounds like I'm in a huge echo chamber. Okay, here we go. Okay, is that better? Yes. All right. <laughs> so, so Rahab, um, Rahab lived in the city of Jericho, 
and uh, this was just prior to when Israel was going to come in and begin to conquer the land. Gideon lives about probably midway into the book of um, Judges, and he's raised up as a judge, and so probably 100 years or so after Rahab. And uh, we find some common... We find some common ground in them, and I think as we go through the scriptures, you'll pick that up. So anyway, in the story of Rahab, um, there's two spies that get sent into the city. And if you have your Bibles, if you like to follow and read the scriptures, I'll read from Joshua chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, just to kind of give us a setting. Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab. Bring out the men who have come into your house, for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men, but she replied, Yes, the men were here earlier, but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up to them. And so, okay. So here's Rahab. Um, the word that's interpreted prostitute is a Hebrew word. It's pronounced something like zonos. And it, mean, it can mean two things. It can mean innkeeper or it can mean prostitute. Uh, or so, you know, and you can kind of see the crossover there because she has a house. And um, when we look at, at least to my mind, when I start looking at this thing about prostitute, I think Rahab maybe gets... A, a, we like to come down a little heavy-handed on that to jade the story or something. And it's just, it's just not, because if you really read all of the story, and I hope to bring that out today, that first of all, this woman had a, she had a house that was built into the wall of the city. And it was a place, it was an inn where people could stay. And so that's what she was doing. So here she is, she's, she's a, probably a young woman. And... Uh, the reason I say that is because at the end of the story and sometime after, she marries. And we'll get to that after a bit. So she's a, probably a younger woman of childbearing age, at least. She uh, has her own house. She uh, has a family. She has brothers, no husband, but she has brothers and sisters that come to play in the story, as we'll see in a little bit. To me... Um, She seems like a, she seems like a go-ahead kind of woman to me. You know, she kind of like can make stuff happen. She's living in this culture that may or may not be that favorable to her. We don't, I didn't take the time to go back and really study about the kind of the religious setting of Canaan. But the, if you stop and think about the, the reason that God was judging Canaan and, the, and he was waiting for their sin to become complete, as they were building cities and different things, preparing the land for Israel to come in and take, take it over. So there was a kind of a two-pronged thing that was going on. The Canaanites were building cities and building vineyards and building agriculture. They were doing all of that. And while, while the Israelites were down in 
in Egypt, God was preparing the land for them to go in and take what they didn't build and to inhabit. <laughs> you see what I mean? That's, that's part of what was going on. But then there was idolatry in the land that was just really horrible. Some of the things that, some of the Canaanite gods were like Molech, where there was child sacrifice. We'd throw children into the fire. And there were um, lots of sexual practices for, pros, pros, for prosperity. Um, the Canaanite gods were basically like storm gods. So, uh, you know, they, they had weather things that they were trying to manipulate their religious activities. That was kind of the picture. You, you kind of get the picture. And so anyway, here's Rahab. She's living in the city. And she's, if she's a young, younger woman of childbearing age, the Israelites have been in the wilderness for 40 years. So her whole life, these people have been not very far off, off of her border. They've been down there on the Sinai Peninsula. God's been with them doing powerful things. They've heard the stories. She knows the stories. And then it says in the scripture that, um, let me get to where my notes are here so I can keep up. So she kind of, not only is she taking care of business, building her home and having a home, and even if she is providing special favors in hospitality, she's surviving. In, uh, that's kind of the picture I want to point. She's, uh, to me, she strikes me as a woman who's paying attention to life and looking out. And so anyway, these two spies come, and she sees an opportunity. She really does. And so she hides these spies. She knows what's going to happen. When I read this next passage of Scripture, I think this will all come together for you. Uh, she extends hospitality, so she welcomed peace. Uh, in peace, these, these spies... They came in, she protected them. When the king heard about them and come looking for them, she hid them. And she wants to make, she wants to draw them out and find favor with them. She's trying to curry favor with them for her self-preservation and the preservation of her family because she knows exactly what's going to happen. And that's where her faith really starts to shine. Let's read Joshua 2, chapter 8 through 13. It says this. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk to them. I know the Lord has given you this land. Just think of the intensity of that. I know the Lord has given you the has given you this land. She told him, "We're all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt, and we know what you did to Sihon and Og." the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River. These people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things, for the Lord your God is the supreme God of heavens above and the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother my brothers and sisters, and all their families. So she's providing a place of refuge and safety for all her family. That's what she's begging for. Uh, it's interesting because the command to Joshua is to completely destroy. It's a Hebrew word called karham, and it means, to, it, it means dedicated for destruction 
for a holy purpose, really, is what it means. Like, it would be like when they make a burnt offering to the Lord, and they put it to the fire, and the smoke goes up. It's utterly, there's no part of it that anybody participates in. It's a complete and total destruction. And so what it is, is it's an action that is meant um, on our side as, as an act of dedication, uh, a, a, an, an act of faith that we do of dedication that makes the rest of everything holy. For example, the tithe was holy. It was meant to be utterly used, and it was meant to be used all the way up. When you give a tithe, it wasn't, it wasn't like you used bits and portions of it. You know, it was, it was to be used completely for the work of the priesthood. And so it was dedicated. And so when you would give, when you would give your offering, um, it was meant, it was meant as an offering of first fruits, if you will. And so Jericho kind of takes that place. It's like these two Amorite kings that get utterly destroyed in Jericho is kind of like an offering of the first, the first conquest when they go into the land. So utter destruction is called for. And these two spies, I don't, <laughs> these two spies, they just like go, sure, we'll make you a promise. <laughs> and I'm kind of looking at them and I'm going, I wonder what Yahweh thinks of that. You know, here they've been commanded to utterly destroy everything, and now this woman has done them a kindness, and they decide to go ahead and, well, we'll spare you. But it's like, it, it's like, the, the only thing that I can get from that is that Yahweh must have put favor on this woman. It's the only thing I can think of. Why would they care about a, making a promise to a prostitute? It doesn't make any sense. God has to be in it on her behalf. And so, this is what I like. He's, the Lord is looking upon these people, and he sees this woman that has faith. He sees her faith. He sees that she's aware of what's going on, and in her heart, this is what she believes. We've already read it. And I think that the Lord has given her favor and favor and made this allowance for her, which kind of broadens the story up. And, and you can kind of see where it's going. The Lord knows, no matter where we are or what things we're involved in, he looks past all of that. In, in Rahab's story, at least we should see that, that he looks past all of whatever things we've been pressed into in life, whatever compromises we've had to endure, whatever struggles that we've been in, no matter what self-judgments we have or what cultural things are put upon us, all of that, Yahweh looks past all that, down to that thing of, What's in your heart? And I think he sees in Rahab's heart there's, some, there's something there. There's something there that he blesses. And so he gives favor, and then, and then Joshua honors the vow that they made. So she courageously heads in and gains this oath from the spies. So the spies, they bring back to Joshua a good report given to them by Rahab. She hangs the cord out of the window for a sign of the oath, which is an obedient act of trust. They say, put the, put the cord out of the window. I don't know, we can make a big deal about that, but she did it. You know, sometimes the Lord just tells us to do the simplest things. And if we just do it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a, it's like almost like a test of faith. And so I, I, that's how I kind of, you know, just looking back behind the story, that's what I'm trying to get at. And so anyway, she does this obedient act of trust, and Joshua honors the oath. Rahab's entire family is spared. 
In Joshua 6, 27 and 25, two verses, 16, uh, 6, 17 and 6, 25, Verse 17, Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. And in verse 25, so Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house. Because she had hidden the spies, Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Not only did Yahweh look into her heart and see her faith, that she had confidence, she was aware of the circumstances. She knew that the defeat was already imminent because of the fear of the people in the land. They were terrified. And when I stop and think about that, kind of try to put yourself in that place of being the little city of Jericho, and you've got this huge number of people. And God has been with them, done these miraculous signs and wonders. There's this sense of impending doom, of something that's going to come that's going to significantly affect you. And their hearts are melting like wax because of that. And so in our faith, because of the time, you know, there is an appointed time. And so like Rahab, I just kind of want to point this out a little bit. Like Rahab, looking ahead and seeing something that's coming ought to help people make a good decision about things. You know, Jesus will come again. And the next time he comes, it's going to be a time of judgment and a time of cleansing, fire, that, you know, is what the scriptures tell us. And, you know, it's going to be different than the first time. Those things that are evil that are among us are going to be put away. He's going to deal with all that stuff. He's going to drive it out and change and transform everything. And so in wisdom, like Rahab, we can look ahead and see destruction and make plans for peace. There's a verse of scripture where Jesus says, you know, who among you doesn't see an army coming at you? And you size up whether you're able to meet it. And, uh, you know, and if you're not, you go out and make terms of peace. And so this is exactly what we see Rahab doing. She's she's making terms of peace to the rescue of her family. And so, you know, these are just, I don't know, these are things that we can pick up from this story. So anyway, uh, she's saved, she's brought out uh, to the camp when they destroy the walls, you know the story of Jericho. Uh, The walls fell down, and uh, the piece of wall that she was in was spared. She um, is brought down into the camp. And she is eventually incorporated into the covenant family and was led to a husband, which put her in a place of inheriting land. This is kind of the rest of the story, the result of her faith. So she's protected. She's brought out with her family. She's incorporated into the covenant people of God as they're going to go in and possess Canaan, where she had a a small house and a wall. She's suddenly going to become a, a... through marriage to a man named Solomon, she uh, is going to become an inheritor of land. She's going to become a landholder in the land. And um, she marries Salmon, and her firstborn son is Boaz. Boaz was described as a wealthy and influential man. Now, I'm going to just take a moment and say, thanks, Mom. <laughs> So we look at this woman who's scorned on, you know, by the culture around her and everything, 
But this is what I mean. This woman had some chops. She really did. She marries this man who inherits some land and she raises a son. The two of them raise a son that becomes Boaz and Boaz is a very influential and um, uh, respected man. Remember the story of Ruth. Ruth is, comes and goes and she's gleaning and Boaz shows her kindness. So here he has all of this noble, all of this noble character that Boaz has. And he didn't just like, you know, have a bad, you know, hey, my mom was a harlot, you know, and my dad was, I don't know where he was at, he married her, you know. But I suddenly, you know, popped up like a successful person full of, you know, with wealth and influence. I just don't think that's how the story goes. And so it has a good outcome. Her faith leads her into a place of prosperity, a place of uh, influence and meaning. And so when we go to the, the rest of the story is that she became the great-grandmother of David and the ancestor of Jesus, according to Matthew's gospel. She's mentioned there. So her name, this little girl in a little town that was ready to get burned up, becomes immortalized through one, one act of faith on one day. A small act of faith, really, on one day. She saw... She had respect and fear for the Lord, and she began to move in keeping with that. One act on one, one day, <laughs> that was all it was. And now the story just goes on. And here we are today, even today, talking about her thousands of years later, immortalized in scripture. My point is, never underestimate small acts of faith. Little obediences, tiny things. When the opportunities come to stand for right, to say the good word, to offer the cup of water, to um, reach across the aisle to the unlovely or the scorned, any of that, when you do any of that, those little small acts of faith, they become like dominoes in effect. And... They just, they just, God gets the glory, whether we see it or not. You think that, you think that Rahab, you know, on that particular day looked ahead and thought, oh, guess what, I'm going to marry somebody and he's going to be the savior, of, you know, I'm eventually in my family is going to be a savior of the world that's going <laughs> to cleanse them. She didn't think that way at all. She just was faithful where she was. Rahab's act of faith not only proves her wiser than all the citizens of Jericho, but also stands as a testimony against them in the day of judgment. Your faith, my faith, will have the same effect on the day of Jesus' return when he comes in judgment. So, Jesus said that we would be persecuted and they would, people would hate us, they would misunderstand us for trusting him. And the vindication of Jesus in his resurrection is kind of passed on to us. Jesus says that we will rise up and judge angels. And what happens is in our life, our faith, as God justifies us by his Holy Spirit in our life, and we can experience this in a lot of, a lot of ways, even in the journey. But what happens is our faith oftentimes is, is justified by works of the Spirit, and people see it. Uh, they maybe persecuted us, but then they see something happen, uh, trying to trying to keep from rabbit trailing off on my stories because I have my 
story catalog in my head. And so we can, what, ha, what I'm trying to say is that like Rahab, when her city was destroyed, her faith was vindicated right there. Uh, and her life and her faith became a testimony against the ungodliness of the city that she was in, in the same way that we can. And so Rahab's faith. Now we get Gideon. Now Gideon's a little bit different. Uh, we have him in, in uh, Judges chapter 6. And here we go. Gideon is, Gideon's story takes place when the judges came and the, Israel has no king and so there's a series of judges that are kind of helping the people stay in order and to obey the covenant but they're kind of, you know, if you know the story there's kind of rise and fall. Every time a judge rises up the nation does pretty good and then it'll get corruption will come in and idolatry starts to rise up and everything falls apart and there's these oppressive forces that come in. Josh or Gideon stands in the middle of kind of that. He's he's like in the he's one of the judges kind of in the middle. And here's his story. Uh, the nation has wandered away from covenant faithfulness with Yahweh and taken to consorting with idols and the idols of the Canaanite gods, which is actually spiritual prostitution. As a result of refusing God's blessing and protection, the Midianites, a cruel and oppressive neighbor, have destroyed or stolen most of the food supply, leaving widespread hunger. The Bible says that they were as thick as locusts and took, and took all the livestock and stripped the land bare, leaving the Israelites to starvation. So these Midianites are an Ishmaelite people. They're, they're Arabs, actually, wandering. They're kind of wandering, you know, in a certain area, but they wander about, and they live this nomadic lifestyle. But anyway, there are so many of them, and they've come down against the covenant people of God, and it says that they just will show up and they will be, they will just be as thick as locusts. They just take everything. And there's just no, no way to resist them. And so we find Gideon, he's down in a wine press, which is probably kind of down in a depression. He's in a hole in the ground trying to make some food and uh, press out some wine for his people. And all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden this angel comes to him, which I'll read the scripture in a minute. So you get this picture. He's kind of cowardly. He's afraid. I mean, there is a lot that's going on around him. There's this dangerous situation that's around him, these people that are robbing him. Uh, he probably, he just doesn't have, uh, he doesn't seem to have a lot of stamina. He's just kind of cowardly. He really is. And so anyway, uh, the people cry out to the Lord in their distress, and they send them a prophet. Uh, and the prophet tells them what they've done, and they can begin to. The prophet prepares the people for Gideon to rise up. And so, in Judges six verses eleven through sixteen, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. Gideon, the son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, if I was feeling cowardly and down in the bottom of a hole trying to make a loaf of bread, 
And the angel showed up and said, mighty hero, mighty man of God. <laughs> I would like to go, <laughs> kind of, who, me? <laughs> and that's, a, that's kind of the picture I get of Gideon, you know, it's like, who, me? <laughs> and, and I don't know, if, if you've hung around with me, you'll see, I, I will say stuff like that to people because I just like, because I love these stories. And, uh, you know, I'll say, hail thou mighty man of valor or something. You know, I like to greet people that way. And people always do that. They always kind of like. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. In this, in this reaction to the angel, it's almost as if Gideon's trying to justify his, his uh, reticence, I guess is the best word. And so he's saying, well, if you're so powerful, why, why are we in this place? You know, he hasn't really figured out that it's, it's, it's me and my people. We've done this thing. It's kind of like... It's kind of like an Isaiah, to me it's kind of like an Isaiah moment when Isaiah, you know, because Isaiah's talking kind of this way, the first five chapters as he's making prophecies, and then he gets to chapter six and gets a revelation of the Lord, and all of a sudden he goes, oh, what was me? I'm a man of unclean lips living among an unclean people. And I think Gideon has conveniently, like many people are able to do, removed themselves from the sense of responsibility of the situation, you know. And I think sometimes in our Christian faith, we can, we can kind of do that. It's like we exclude ourselves from the things that are going on around us. But we, we really can't do that. You see, we belong. We belong in the place that we are. And so that's, what, that's part of what Jesus means when, when he's saying, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to set them apart for work in the world. And so, if it goes bad for America, it goes bad for us all. It's not like we're all going to just like get to live out in the, you know, the northeast side of Yellowstone County while all of this trouble goes, goes on around us. No, that's just not how it works. Not in history, not in the scriptures. That's what, that's what, when the Lord encouraged Daniel. In the land that you're going down into, he says, he says, pray for, pray for them, pray for the people, pray for the leaders. Because if it goes well for them, it goes well for you. That's a pretty heavy word that I'm saying. But that's a kind of part of the responsibility. When the Lord asks us to pray and to pray for the authorities that are around us and to pray for the neighbors and pray and to participate in these acts of charity and goodness, we really need to be serious about it. We really do. And so, so like Gideon, we can, we can actually justify ourselves 
or our reticence. I don't want to use the strong word of cowardice, but I, you know, I have seen myself there several times. I'll judge myself. I mean, I sometimes I've had conversations with Adam, and I said, Adam, I, I don't understand. I have these areas of my life where I, where I seem really confident, but then I have these certain areas where I just seem to waffle. Why is that? What's broken in there? That makes me be so cowardly in this one area when I'm so courageous over here. I can see something the Lord has done. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. That's my experience. And I like, I hate that. I don't, I don't want that. I want to be, I want to have integrity before the Lord all the way across the board. And so I can relate to Gideon. The strengthening reassurance that comes from the word of God, I will be with you. Is it sets everything right. When Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he means it. And you can have confidence in that. I don't care how dark, how bad, how rough it gets. He will never abandon you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He says, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. And he means it. And so like Gideon, we can draw a tremendous amount of strength from that. Well, Gideon, he's still lacking any kind of confidence and this, is, this is, shows the, it, it, the amazing patience of the Lord. He allows Gideon to test him with these requests for signs. And he does it on and on and on. It does, it, he like, it's almost become a habitual pattern with him. And so he, you know, he, he, goes and he, goes, he goes and he makes an offering to the Lord, puts it on an altar, and the Lord touches it with a staff, and he goes up in fire, and Gideon's like, wow, okay, okay, I believe you're the Lord. And then he goes, but... Let me throw a fleece down. <laughs> so he throws down this fleece, not once, but two times, and the Lord's really patient with him. Now, I'm not advocating, you know, there's been a lot of teaching in the church over the years about throwing down fleeces and all that sort of stuff. This is not really a positive story. <laughs> you know? But what I want, want you to get from it is, if that's what's necessary, the Lord will probably make concession for you. So I'm telling you, don't throw down no fleeces. But if you have to, well, he's a good God and a big God. <laughs> so, so anyway, that, we have that. It's important to see that the Lord is bowing down to help Gideon. He, can, he sees in Gideon's heart that he has the stuff. He's got stuff in there like we talked last week that he can draw out and use to accomplish his purposes. Nothing really depends upon Gideon, but Gideon has some stuff that the Lord can speak to. Because God just does things. He's going to use humans to do everything that he does. And it goes back to the beginning in Genesis. That's what he told us to do, that we're going to rule the earth. And he has not abandoned that idea. He still wants us to multiply, subdue, and rule. He still does. He hasn't repealed that. And so that everything that he does, it really helps you to understand things. We're kind of like, well, I'll sit in my chair and watch, watch like a television show, you know, the Lord do something. Well, it's probably not going to happen that way. He's probably going to just have you go talk to somebody and do something. He meets us where we are. One thing of note, right after the initial meeting with the Lord, he's tasked with an action that will cost him something. This is wisdom. He's tasked with something that will cost him. He tears down an altar and an Asherah pole, two symbols of worship of the Canaanite gods. The locals want to kill him. 
Because what he's done is he's gone over there, flipped over an altar, burned it, and cut down this pole. And so the townspeople think, oh, he's done it now. He's going to bring the wrath of gods, the gods upon us. And they want to kill him. And his dad stands up. Uh, Gideon's father stands up. His name is Joash. And he tells the townspeople, well, what's the matter? Let the gods take care of it. If they're offended, let them take retribution. And, and so the, the guys go, that sounds pretty smart. Gosh, that sounds pretty smart. <laughs> you know, and so anyway, Gideon is delivered. I, I just think it's almost a comedy, but that's what he does. And he saves them. I mean, it's going to cost him. Now, if this was you, and you went down and blew up the sky point downtown, and all the city came out, and said, we gotta, we're going to hang him. Public destruction of property here. <laughs> you see, it, it makes it more, if you can kind of imagine it like that, it makes it much more real. Gideon really feels threatened. Now, oftentimes when the Lord is asking us to do things or he's training us, he takes us into really uncomfortable situations where we can, where we can do an obedience and meet God in his power. And I don't know, I, I, I mean, I could go on a lot of different ways, like when the Lord was moving me towards doing ministry at the college, I didn't know. I just was doing little things the Lord was putting in front of me. I was just being obedient with things that I knew to do. I didn't know that, like, some of my financial struggles, some of the, uh, he told me to pay my taxes, for example. I was mad, and I was mad. I, I don't want to take up too much time on this, but I was mad at the IRS because uh, they did me an injustice. And I think I've told that story before. And so anyway, I open up my New Testament, and I'm reading it, and it's right in the red, and you know that that's the real stuff, the red. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar what Caesar's. I knew what he meant. Oh, and I was like, oh, I didn't want to do that. It wasn't a lot of money at the time, but... What was it? Maybe 17 or 18 years I spent under the thumb of the IRS in the behavior modification plan. <laughs> and when I look back, oh, I hated it and I cringed under it. But the Lord asked me to do that, and it cost me. It cost me a lot in emotional stuff. And I can't tell you the number of shakings that went on, but I wouldn't trade one minute of that for what the Lord accomplished in my life as he prepared me to do other things, many other things that were much greater. And I can go right back to that place of wrangling and wrestling through these emotional struggles with, Lord, how can you have these Midianites over the top of me robbing my food and my children's future? Those uncircumcised Philistines? <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can work up a good religious passion. And justification. But the bottom line was Jesus was wanting me to learn to be a responsible man <laughs> and to have integrity. And he was taking a coward and a liar and he was training him into something else. And I think Gideon's experiencing a little bit of that. Gideon calls for an army from the tribes of Israel, numbering 32,000, but the Lord prunes it way back to 300. Uh, and they encountered the Midianites. He's got them ready. So, so Gideon thinks, well, I'll go out and get an army together. 
And he does. He gets 32,000 men. And the Lord goes, way too many, way too many. And so some of you that are familiar with the story, you know, there's this drinking thing, lapping like dogs and stuff. Anyway, he sends home. Gideon says, if any of you are afraid, just go on home. And so a bunch of them leave. And he gets down to 300. And the scriptures tell us that when Joshua went out to meet the Midianites, they were filling up a valley. It looked, they were just, I mean, they were just, there was thousands and thousands of them down in this valley. And uh, so the angel tells him to go down there. And uh, the Lord tells him, go down. I've given the Midianites to you. And uh, he's looking at Gideon, and Gideon's still a little reserved. He's unsure. He goes, so well, take your buddy and go down and listen. So they go down. Gideon grabs his buddy, Purah, and they go down to the edge of the Midianite camp. And these two Midianites are talking. He goes, I had a dream. And the other one goes, oh, what was the dream about? I saw this little barley loaf. That's like, the, that's like cheap bread. That's what Gideon is. <laughs> he's, like, he's not even fine wheat bread. He's just barley loaf that was come tumbling down the hill, and it hit our tent and knocked it over. I, we think, you know, the Midianites were, what was happening, God was putting a spirit of fear on them in preparation for what he was going to do. Let that echo go back to when Rahab, we know, we know that the Lord has given you the city, the land, because everybody is terrified of you. And so the Lord just looses this spirit of fear upon the Midianites. And they really think in their minds that, um, anyway, that's how God strengthens Gideon. He sees, he discerns something, he hears something. And he finds the strength to follow through. So he takes his 300 guys, he gives them some clay pots and puts some candles in it. And they go out and smack these pots and the lights all around them. And the Midianites just freak out. What they do is they jump up and they go to battle with each other until they just all slaughter each other. And I mean, you're just like, how do I think to make a good Hollywood blockbuster? Kind of like the movie would be like five minutes long. You know, there wouldn't be any heroics in it. You know, Gideon's just up there on the hill watching these Midianites slaughter themselves. But the power of the Lord to come and deliver. And I think it's, I think it's really cool. And there's something that we can see in there. The end of evil is destruction. Wisdom teaches us that people who give themselves to evil and persistent evil behavior choose destruction, both now and eternally. The Midianites, and in both of the stories, you can see that what the Lord does is he takes the devices of the enemy and he uses them against himself, against the enemy. The enemy uses his own devices and warfare against. Does that make sense? I don't know if I feel like I'm stumbling over my tongue. In other words, the Midianites had perpetrated fear and intimidation. And by fear and intimidation, the Lord destroyed them. And that's a consistent pattern through the scriptures that you can see. And it's like, I was thinking about death this morning a little bit. And... Because it's a, it's a subject that I think about a lot. I would like to write on it a little bit if I, if I can just gain some lucid thoughts on it. But in the garden, the devil basically tempted Eve into death. That's what he did. He knew that if he got her to cross over into death, that he would have her. And so really, that's what he did. The temptation that he lured her to, and Adam, 
was to enter into death. And I love the, the idea that it is with the overturning of death that all the power and the influence of the enemy will be destroyed. When God overturns death in the, in the resurrection, there's no, there's, there is no place then for the devil. It makes perfect sense that he'll just do away with him. But he, only has, he only has authority in darkness. He only has authority in fear. He only has authority in those negative things that, that abide with death. And so even, even in that element of death, in the end, God will destroy the one who perpetrated death with death. I love it. Fear and fear. It's all the way through the scripture. You can see it. Now that I've told you that, you can see it. <laughs> and so anyway... These two people were ordinary people just like us. They were threatened, afraid, sometimes hopeless feeling. But Yahweh saw them. He saw their faith. And the potential that he had, that he, that he, the potential they had, and he could draw that faith out into actions that would lead to great things. These two said yes to participating in a very, re, in a very present work, a right now work that God is doing. And we can do the same. They discovered the love and the power of the Lord, his sustaining and preserving goodness. They found life by saying yes. And so can we. And so they stand as heroes of faith that show us as an example of the way we should go. We should gain a strong encouragement from that. And so now let's uh, return to worship. And uh, if we have a prayer team here. Maybe we could be ready. And let me break. Let me say a prayer real quick. And if you would like prayer about anything this morning, there'll be a few of us down here that will pray with you. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you look upon our hearts. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you call us to small acts of faith that lead to big things. Lord, I have no idea what might be in the hearts of people this morning here what things you've been saying to them, whispering to them, showing them. But I pray, Father, today that, that uh, as we join together in prayer and support one another, Lord, that you will help draw those things out as we sing and worship and bring honor to your name. In Jesus we ask. Amen.